Well, good morning. I'm delighted to be here. Hello to those in the uh, central campus and the southern campus, the online campus, and uh, my home state in Branson, Missouri, Kansas City boy. Uh, regarding the distinguished professor, my colleagues call me the extinguished professor. So, you know, you take your choice on that one. <laughs> I'm glad to be here. So, well, there I was. It was 2.30 in the morning, Saturday morning, May 24th, 2003. I had just, the day before, gone to the university graduation and finished the worst, most stressful year I had ever had in, in recent memory. And I was looking forward to a six-month sabbatical to, to rest, to write, uh, and to do a little speaking. Little did I know that at 2.30 a.m. On, on May 24th, pardon me, I was going to begin a seven-month period of the most traumatizing, uh, terrorizing, uh, horrible periods in, in my whole life. I woke up at 2.30 with a start, and I was sweating. I had been, my t-shirt was drenched with sweat. My heart was pounding through my chest. Uh, I, I had electricity all throughout my body, especially from my brain down the back of my head into my chest area. Uh, and I was just adrenalized, and I felt like there might be some, some armed robbers in the house. And so I went and I checked out every room, and nobody was there. And my wife came and said, Jer, what's going on? And I said, I don't know, honey. I just, I, I, I'm horrified. And I don't know what I'm horrified about. And, and I was having for the, a, a panic attack. And so I said, I need to walk, and it was 2.30. And I walked until the sun came up. And I probably walked around our half to three-fourths of a mile block maybe a hundred times that weekend, obsessing on two thoughts that were, were, were causing me to have fear and horror. Now, um, my background is that I have a genetic predisposition towards anxiety. Um, the entire side of my mom's family, from my grandpa to my mother and her siblings and my cousins and I and my daughter that looks like me, the daughter that looks like her mother is disgustingly quiet and peaceful. But uh, uh, the one that looks like me is high strung. And so uh, I know that there was a genetic predisposition towards it. It doesn't mean I'm determined, it just means I'm more inclined. Uh, to have it. And then I grew up in a family, which I won't go into details. I wrote a book called Finding Quiet, and those details are in that book. But uh, it was traumatizing to me. So that by the time I was in, in middle school, I had learned well how to worry and be anxious by watching my mother, who was a good teacher, about fear and anxiety. Um, that panic, those panic attacks uh, caused me to have a nervous breakdown. And for a period of seven months, I was completely dysfunctional. I, I remember the first month, I, I literally was curled up in a fetal position on the couch for about a month. I was horrified to drive a car because it was too much stimulation. 
um, I couldn't have guests over. They scare, it scared me. Uh, when the phone rang, uh, I, was, I was horrified. Uh, I had irrational fears about getting fired, and I, it, they, they were just crazy kind of a things. <sighs> the day after Christmas, it lifted. Reason is, I think, I got on medications. I went into Christian counseling. Um, I devoted myself to, my, to prayer and, 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 and the scriptures and good friendships. And uh, seven months, it, it lifted. For the next 10 years, I was basically okay. And then I had, I, I had another really stressful year. And the day the school year was over with, I had uh, that afternoon delivered a very, very technical academic paper at a very highbrow uh, academic conference where there were a lot of people that didn't agree with my views. And um, so I went to the parking lot to get in my car. And, and folks, I'm telling you, I got about two-thirds of the way there, and it was, like, uh, it was like I stepped on something that shot electricity completely through my body. And I told the Lord, oh, God, not again. And it was again. So I last, that lasted five months. I had courses I had to teach uh, at the end of August. And I got into the, taught the first two weeks, and I just couldn't do it. I would go to the classroom an hour before my classes started, where nobody was in there, and sit down up front just so I wasn't horrified at the classroom. I was scared of the room itself. And uh, I had to quit teaching. And um, uh, I began to, to get better. And towards the end, I, I really believe the Lord spoke to me. And he said, I want you to use your research skills. And I want you to study everything you can get your hands on, JP, about anxiety and depression. And I want you to put, put into practice the things that you see that will help you most. And then I want you to write this and to share it with my people. And I discovered in my research, and I know how to do research and, and study. I did that for about a year and a half, and I, must, I read everything in sight, Christian, non-Christian, on this subject. And I boiled down uh, what, I, what I discovered down to a set of ideas and four crucial practices that I have done every single day for the last, I'd say, five years, four years. And, and, and I'm going to be honest, I'm, I'm, not, I'm a straight shooter. I always have been, um, and I'm not going to stop now. I have been completely anxiety and depression-free for three years. I am a different person. Thank you. Now, and and the, pra the four practices that are, that I can only cover one of them, but I'm going to teach you how to present your brain to God as an instrument of righteousness. You also need to do your heart muscle, uh, but I can't talk about that, uh, but we'll cover one of the four practices. How do I know they worked? And at the August 2015, I began a two-and-a-half-year period of medical nightmare. I, I discovered over that time three life-threatening cancers of a different sort. I had eight surgeries. I had a pacemaker put in. I had radiation, 
chemo. The reason I'm on a stool is because I have severe neuropathy from the chemo, and I can't stand up longer than 10 minutes, and so I have to sit on a stool, and I don't have socks on because it pressures my feet. I, also because I'm a cool Southern California guy. That's, <laughs> so that's a completely different point, ladies and gentlemen. And, um, and I like the Longhorns better than I do the Trojans, so... But I do like the Missouri Tigers and the Kansas City Chiefs best. But anyway, Big 12, uh, I hope they beat the SEC all the time, except when they play the Tigers. All right. Um, and so during that time, I, I was going, I, one week I, I had seven different doctors, specialists I saw. And I was so happy during that time and peaceful, I had no worries whatsoever. I, I stopped thinking about the future. I mean, I'd have a surgery come up in two or three days, and my wife would say, Jay, you got surgery on Thursday. And I said, shoot, are you kidding me? I just didn't live in the future. And my wife and my daughters and my friends said, what, dude, what is wrong with you? Something's different, man. You're just a different person. I, I've never seen you like this. I practice what I'm going to teach you this morning. And I can only cover one four practices, but, but all four of them are key, but this will be enough, I think, to help you. Now, before we do, I want to step back and make two quick points, and then we'll dive in. The first point I want to make, after now that I've shared my story with you, is that anxiety is now the number one uh, mental disorder, health crisis, call it what you want, in the United States. This last year, 40 million Americans, 20% of the population over 18, had a significant anxiety episode. And that's not counting people who just have anxiety that they would like to get rid of. This is severe anxiety, with depression being number two. And this, what that means is that if, if this message is not for you, you know someone who needs to hear it. And so please, you have a friend or a relative, get them the link. If this isn't for you, take notes and, and share what you learn with them if, if you can. Uh, this, the, the, the second thing I want to point out to you, and this is the most important thing I learned in my study, and you can put slide one up. Listen very carefully, anxiety is largely and this goes for depression as well, not entirely, but is largely an ingrained, learned habit that can be unlearned with the right practices. Let's say that again. Anxiety is largely, not entirely, an ingrained habit that is, that is the result of having learned it. And you can unlearn that habit and replace it with a habit of responding to life peacefully and joyfully. Because if every life circumstance, you can either choose to be formed or deformed by it. And you want to you wanna learn to practice certain things that, that work to get rid of those habits. Now, what I'm going to do is I want to, to root what I'm going to say in Scripture. Uh, I'm going to turn in a second to an absolutely bizarre passage that seems to make no sense. 
And uh, if, if you think it makes sense, see me after class. Um, oh, sorry, this isn't the... Uh, all right, but um, uh, what I'll do is explain it to you. Um, uh, some people can't handle the truth. Oh, this gentleman's leaving. Okay, so just... <laughs> so I'm just kidding, sir. I'm just kidding. <laughs> he was bigger than I am. I'm just... I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm starting to get anxious. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay, so I'm going exp- to read this text with you. It's bizarre. If you don't think it's bizarre, there's something wrong with you, and you, and you don't have a clue how to do it. Not a clue. I didn't either. And then I'm going to explain it and unpack it. I'm going I'm to re- show you how neuroscience uh, has underscored this, and then I'm going to lead into a practice that follows this idea. So, please listen thoughtfully. Are you ready to jump in? Do we feel any love? Are we feeling the love? All right, good. All right, here's the passage, Romans 6, 11 through 13, and then 19. Let's put the slide up. And let's, let's dive in. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its law. Where does sin reside? It's not in your thoughts. It's not in your emotions, primarily. It can get there. Sin resides in the organs of your body. It resides in the stomach. It resides in in your legs, in your lips. It resides, uh, the two key places relevant to anxiety and depression, is the organ of the brain and the organ of the heart muscle. That's where f- sin resides, or we'll call it flesh. Flesh is in your body in the form of muscle memory. Now, let's keep going. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. The Bible says it, ladies and gentlemen, don't run me out of here, that you should obey its lusts, and don't go on presenting, here they are, the members of your body. Those are organs, like your stomach, or a region, like your lips. If you talk all the time in order to cover your fear, one of the things you have to do is to present your lips to God, meaning that before you go into a social setting, I kid you not, you focus on keeping them shut. You won't, you won't learn, lose the habit of talking all the time unless you shut them. So you have to, because this is where the sin resides. You don't start, you don't will to start talking all the time. It's a habit. It just happens. You got to shut it up. Pretty soon your tongue, stop laughing at me, lady. Pretty soon your tongue, <laughs> I'm being mocked among my own people. And your tongue, all right, whatever. All right, now let's keep going. Um, and, uh, members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and present them your members. 
as instruments of righteousness to God. Now, about verse 19, Romans 6, 19. Uh, I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness. I believe that concept of righteousness not only means moral purity, but it means shalom or a deep sense of well-being and happiness and peace and joy with no anxiety or fear anger resulting in sanctification, and that's why I, I hold that. Now, what in the heck does this mean? All right, I'm, I'm going to define four terms for you. These are all, if you don't want to take notes, they're all in the book Finding Quiet with a pretty detailed elaboration, but I'm going to define four terms for you, and then I'm going to illustrate them, uh, and, the, and then we're going to take a look at uh, applying this to the spiritual life, uh, and, uh, and especially anxiety and getting rid of that and depression. Okay, so here's the first term, a habit. A habit is a, an ingrained tendency to think, feel, or act a certain way without choosing to do so. It's an ingrained tendency to think, feel, or act a certain way without choosing to do so. Some people pick their nails or bite the insides of their cheeks. They don't choose to do that. That, that habit resides in the muscle tissues and the areas where that happens. I have penmanship character. In fact, I've actually got penmanship flash, which we'll talk about later. But um, I have penmanship habits that reside in these members of my body. I'm left-handed. Um, when I write, I don't think about how I'm going to shape the English letters. I do that by what? Habit. I do it by habit. But I'm thinking about what I'm going to say. I have lousy penmanship, and my penmanship flesh resides in these members of my body. And if I were going to change my penmanship flesh to penmanship righteousness, which means get rid of the bad habits of writing and put, put in place good habits, I would have to present these members of my body, not my knees and legs, these members to a penmanship instructor as instruments of penmanship righteousness uh, instead of penmanship flesh. So we've got a habit. What is character? The sum total of your habits. So your character is just the sum total of your habits, good and bad. I have bad penmanship character. All that means is that I have some bad habits about writing. I don't write very, very clearly. The third concept is the, the concept of a body. And we'll just say um, a body is this living thing that you see that contains organs or members in different regions. So you, your, you, your body is the word soma in Greek. Now, there's a fourth term that can be used the same as body. It's sarks, but sometimes there's a very special meaning in the New Testament, and it, it is evil, bad. And it's called flesh. And 
flesh, when it's used in this moral sense, is ingrained habits that reside in your body that are contrary to the Scriptures and the kingdom of God. They're ingrained habits that reside in the members of your body that are contrary to a life of flourishing and shalom and the Scriptures in God's kingdom. Now, uh, so habit, character, body, flesh. Let me illustrate this. Suppose that I'm uh, playing golf and I'm just, I'm, I'm, not, I'm lousy. And um, a guy who knows how to play looks at me and he says, you know what, your hips and your, your, your shoulders and your wrists are, are excellent. You, you're doing a great job with that. Your problem is in your, is in your hips and your torso and the way that you're turning. So what you need to do is to present these members to a golf instructor as instruments of righteousness, golf righteousness, that just means as instruments of getting good at the game of golf, in order to get rid of your golf flesh, which just means bad habits contrary to being good at God, and where do they reside? In, in, in this area here, not my shoulders and wrists. So how do I present my members to a golf instructor? I don't go up to him and get on my knees and say, here are my hips and my, and my torso. Use them in any way you want. And then I listen to a lot of music about golf, uh, about the torso, and, and it just pumps me up. And then I read stuff about your hips and your torso in golf. You know, what do you do? Practice, practice, practice. And so what you're doing is under his leadership, you engage in a certain swing with your torso and your hips in a certain place hundreds of times a day for, say, eight weeks. And what happens is at the beginning stages, you're lousy at this. It feels awkward. The old way you did it felt a lot more natural and better. This feels awkward and phony and foreign. You're, you, don't, you can hardly hit the ball that way. And in the early weeks of forming an, any new habit, whether it's learning Spanish or the piano or getting rid of anxiety and depression, you will be lousy at it in the early weeks of practicing. And it won't do you any good. What do you have to do? Stick with it. And after a while, after repeated behaviors, focusing on those members, you present those members by engaging in repeated behaviors with them, your bad habits or your golf flesh gets ungrooved and replaced with golf shalom or flourishing. Now, um, what you have to do to get rid of anxiety and depression along with therapy and meds and all that is to learn to present your brain, your heart muscle, which I cannot go into, but I, it's one of the four practices in finding quiet, but, but I will talk about one practice using the brain, but you present the brain and your heart muscle right here and your nervous system to God as an instrument of righteousness in order to replace 
the tendencies of anxiety and, 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 and depression with tendencies towards peace and joy and happiness and, and um, that sort of thing. Now, what we've learned in neuroscience is backing up what the Bible says. Did you know that there's something called neuroplasticity? And what that means is that you, your brain structure is not frozen. You can literally change the way your brain is structured by changing the way you're thinking for a period of eight weeks or practicing one of the practices I mentioned in the book. If, if you do this practice for 12 minutes for, for eight weeks, they take a brain scan of you and your brain has become significantly healthy where it was damaged and unhealthy and fear-oriented before you started it. And so you can actually, it makes sense to present your members because they're pliable. They can be reshaped. Now I'm gonna teach you one of, those, one of the four habits that is transformative. And again, you'll be lousy at first. And this, this targets what, what I like to call subconscious, ingrained, triggered self-talk that's negative. Self-talk that's negative that is, that is triggered by the grooves of your brain that have been formed by talking that way to yourself over and over again. So that now this negative self-talk God, I was an idiot in the meeting yesterday. I made a complete fool out of myself. Everybody thinks I'm a loser. Or, gosh, what if this happens? Uh, and then you worry like the daylights about if that happens, what you're going to do to protect yourself, okay? And those things become subconscious. And so you need to get rid of them because you wake up and you're fine. But after a while and you've been doing these, without knowing you were doing them, all of a sudden you're fearful or discouraged and depressed, and you don't know why. And this is one of the main reasons. So here's the four-step solution. Step one is that you relabel the negative self-talk. And so here, here, here is a, what you have to do is, in, there are two verses that I would write down here. 2 Corinthians 10.5 present every thought captive to Christ. We all know that, but the problem is nobody knows how to do it. This is how you do it. This is how you do it. And in, co in, in cooperation with Psalm 139, 23 to 24, which says, search me and know me, examine me. That includes examining the sensations in your body and see if there's any anxiety or harmful way inside of me and lead me in the way of shalom or peace. So you have to become more sensitive to recognizing these messages when they occur. The problem is they're so habituated, you don't notice it. Like you don't notice when you're picking your fingers or that you drive a certain way because they're habits. You gotta ask the spirit to help you. So you've got to become more aware. You won't be good at it at first, but that's okay. You'll get better. So the first thing is when one of these negative self-talks occurs and you spot it, you label it, you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, I know what you are. You're nothing but a triggered brain message. You're engrooved in my brain and you're just nothing but a triggered brain message. You have nothing to do with reality. 
and so you dismiss it. The second thing you do is that you reframe it. Now, um, uh, in the book on page 74, you're going to get a handout on this when you leave. But there are 10 different ways that we typically engage in thought distortion. Now, I'm just going to give you my favorite one. It's called magnification or catastrophizing. And I learned this from my mom. I'm, I'm really good at it. Uh, that's why I spent almost 50 years of my life living in the future or, or longer. And it's when you, you, you go, oh gosh, what if this happens? Oh no. And then you, it, oh, it's going to be, and you make it 10 times worse than it really would be if it happened. By the way, 95% of the things we do that with don't happen according to studies. But anyway, so it's such wasted energy. But you can't just will yourself to stop it. Uh, so you have to present that member to God as an instrument of righteousness repeatedly. So you, you, you label it, wait a minute, I'm catastrophizing. I know exactly what I'm doing. And you're nothing but a distorted brain message you have no connection to the truth, and I even know the kind you are, you're, a catas you're catastrophizing. And there are nine others. Pick your favorite two or three if you get the list and, and, and see which one belongs to you. So now what those two things do is they take the power out of that message. Doctors have learned that if you're in the hospital with pain, if you can just name the ailment that you have, if the doctor just gives you a name for it, believe it or not, that reduces the pain level, just knowing what it is, because you get some sense of control over it. Number three is, I think, the most important thing, and it's called refocus. And what that means is that you turn your attention away from this thought, and you get into something, reading a novel, checking the internet, playing with your pet, doesn't matter, that gets you into what is called flow. And flow is when you get caught up in something that you lose track of time and you're really into it and, distra and you're distracted from everything else. Now, I used to have to do that for 20 minutes, but now I've got it down to about one or two minutes if I have a neg negative self-talk. Um, I do not live in the future anymore. My wife says to me, what do you got going this week? And I say, honey, I have no idea. Now, planning is a good thing, but obsessing is not. And so Sunday, I'll look ahead to make sure I've got things covered. I got on the plane the other day, got here. But then I didn't worry about it, forgot about it. Why worry about it? But you can't just will yourself not to. So refocusing, we think we ought to battle with the thought. If you battle with that thought, you're digging the grooves in your brain deeper so it'll be harder to get rid of it. It becomes more automatic triggered all the time and you carry it with you all the time. Don't get in the mud with that thing. Label it, reframe it, and then refocus on something else. I don't care what it, it doesn't have to be spiritual, it can be anything that gets you caught up and away from it. Now after you've done that and you're kind of feeling safe, that you can go back to the thought and what you did with it and, and reevaluate uh, how you did. And can I, you won't be any good at this early, but I will tell you, I promise you, that anywhere from 22 days to, to three and a half months, um, this will be something 
that will retrain your organs, your members, as instruments of shalom and righteousness and replace the, the fleshly bad habits, especially anxiety and depression, with good healthy habits. Now, I, w- I want to close. Do you understand the habitual, na- the, the practice na- nature of this? Have I communicated that clearly? This is not something you memorize. This is something you have to do repeatedly. But stay with it, and, and it will change you. Independence on God's Spirit, especially, it will change you. I want to close with just two thoughts. Um, the book Finding Quiet came out May 7th, and I, I can only tell you that the response has kind of been overwhelming. I have wept many times, and my wife and I have just been o- overwhelmed at the reviews on Amazon. Um, I want to read one that will give you hope, I think. And here's what one dear sister said I'm indebted to God for this book. In a horrible anxiety attack, just a day after reading the first three chapters, I was able to use the knowledge shared and was able to enjoy the quiet I have longed for for many years. This stuff works, ladies and gentlemen. And I, I, I want to conclu- conclude with saying that this is not meant to be a replacement for medication and therapy, if you're in good Christian counseling, and if you're on meds, I don't want to get into a, a, you know, a food fight on that. Um, some of us are for it, some against it. I, if you're not for taking medications, would you at least borrow a, get, get a copy or borrow a copy of the book and read where I defend it and just give me a hearing? Just please give me an open-minded hearing, that's all I'm asking. But this is not meant as a substitute for those practices. But what I am saying is that the four practices I learned, and, a, and a, with a real emphasis on the one today, the four-step solution, will help you tremendously to get rid of distorted self-talk that fuels anxiety and depression. Habit formation is the key. Why? Put the last slide up. Because anxiety is largely an ingrained learned habit that can be unlearned with the right practices. And the four-step solution is one of those practices. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, my heart is both sad and encouraged. I'm sad because I know the pain of anxiety and depression. I know what it's like to want to have uh, an 18-wheeler hit me while I'm driving and get it over with. I know what that's like. Pray that if anybody is contemplating suicide that's watching, Lord, that you would come upon them and and give them hope that they can change and this won't be with them the rest of their lives. And in the meantime, um, I am thankful that, that 
that these practices work. They work, and they're in accordance with your word in Romans 6. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters that this would be of use to them, and I thank you for this church and these dear friends. In Jesus' name, amen.